You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hey everybody, quick warning before we get started. Today's episode deals with uh, violence towards and death of children. If you're not feeling up for that, or you have sensitive or younger ears around, you may want to skip this one for now. Thanks. In a placid corner of an old and overgrown cemetery on the southern edge of Ohio, the foothills of Appalachia, there's a disquieting grave. It's somehow easy to overlook, even if you happen to live nearby, but once you've seen it, it sticks with you. The memory and mystery get caught in your hair like sap, like cobwebs. I passed by it hundreds of times, unawares. It would have remained that way had the girl I was dating not asked if I wanted to see the creepiest grave she'd ever seen. It was the kind of challenge I'd never pass up, and I'd have followed her anywhere. So, within the hour we found ourselves in front of a pair of green verdigras bronze statues, sisters holding hands in pigtails and sundresses. Their eyes are pitch-black shadows, their faces radiate... something... Something between tragedy and menace. They're shiver-inducing on sight. There's no choice but to think of the girls in The Shining. But it's when you look at the epitaphs that the real curiosity sets in. When you realize that these statues, Victorian in almost every conceivable respect, date back only to 1989, and that both these uncannily commemorated sisters died then, two years apart in age, and four months apart in their departures. We stood in front of the sisters, my girlfriend and I, with a mix of solicitude, dis-ease, and curiosity. She said to me, I wonder what happened to them. I said, I wonder if we can find out. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Everyone Loves a Mystery. Consider the possible explanations, as she and I did during the warm walk from the edge of town to the library at its center. In the 1880s, it had been a short list of likely culprits. TB, malaria, yellow fever, cholera, smallpox, scarlet fever. Infectious diseases, communicable or otherwise, that could sweep through houses, families, neighborhoods, cities. But in the first Bush administration? Heartland America? And a family well off enough for bronze statuary? Very improbable. A car crash. A house fire. Accidents that can kill one, but leave the other hanging on for more than a hundred days after. Consider the oddity of their gravesite, the ghostly faces standing hand in hand, looking outward forever. And with that, allow your mind to drift to darker places as we did, home invasion kidnapping, a brother with an accidentally loaded gun, 
a father with a temper and a drinking problem. Go further still. Think about the city in which the grave is situated, Athens, Ohio, which proudly calls itself the most haunted town in America. Athens rests in a geography that seems constantly to be trying to eject mankind from its borders. Thick vegetation surges out in every direction, always wrapping itself around roads, around buildings, around paths. Steep sandstone foothills bust and break underfoot, under weather, under time. A field left fallow for more than a few months is quickly reclaimed by nature. A house left vacant for more than a year quickly crumbles. The earth is attempting always to reassert herself. Then there is humanity's forceful footprint, the thing against which nature is working. High upon the tallest hill, overlooking the town, is the Ridges, a century-old mental asylum built in the foreboding Victorian style, a complex of buildings, some kept up, some abandoned, with the distinction not always immediately apparent. The main building is itself a mixture of the two. From room to room, wing to wing, one never knows if the next corner will bring a university classroom or a broken observation room. A hallway decked with graffiti or a corner packed with rusted wheelchairs. One time, I managed to accidentally find myself in a room packed nearly from floor to ceiling with, I shit you not, rotting baby dolls. Finally, there are the graveyards themselves, five of them which ring the city in a pentagram. Each of them is subject to the same battle against nature as the rest of the area, vines and brush threatening to overbear the gravestones and mausoleums. But there is another war being waged within the cemetery gates, an old, shameful war of brother versus brother, nation turned inward. The Mason-Dixon line is not far below Athens, and those buried there are an uneasy reminder of this fact with Confederate and Union dead locked in wending territorial disputes beneath the ground. Phalanxes of slavers pressed forever against defensive lines of abolitionists. If you walk around, watching dates, watching ages, watching family names, you can put together the vague histories of tragedy, famine, and disease that once accompanied life here. Clusters of dead in one early 19th century winter, another in an 1880s summer, and the babies, the children, the mothers. Harkening back to an age in which the two most treacherous points of life were giving birth and being born. But those days are, for the most part, behind us. So again, the question, what befell these bronze sisters? At the library, we first turned to the computers. Google, LexisNexis, JSTOR. Her and I huddled together. We'd only been together a few months and were deeply, obsessively smitten, almost from the jump, which perhaps contributed to a sort of low-grade folie de deux, a shared madness that overlooked the possibility of the banal, that shouted down any sense of impropriety or trespass about our quest. The internet gave us nothing. The sisters' devs were just far enough back and in just a small enough community that no digitized records were around. Did this lack of evidence tell us anything by its absence? If, for instance, they had been murdered, wouldn't that have created a large enough blip to leave a Googleable mark? There was another idea, though. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In 1972, Schenectady, New York, eight-day-old Jennifer Tinning died, having never left the hospital of her birth. The cause, according to the medical report, was acute meningitis. Three weeks later, Jennifer's two-year-old brother, Joseph, was pronounced dead on arrival at the same hospital, with Emmys concluding he had also succumbed to the infection in conjunction with an unspecified seizure disorder. A month and a half later, four-year-old Barbara, sister to the departed Jennifer and Joseph, died without signs of meningitis, or anything else for that matter. Mary Beth, the mother of the three dead children, gave birth again to Timothy on Thanksgiving Day of 1973. Three weeks later, she brought him back to Ellis Hospital, lifeless. She said she had discovered him that way in his crib. His death was put down to the nebulous diagnosis of sudden infant death syndrome. The trend continued. Five-month-old Nathan in 1975. Official cause, pulmonary edema. SIDS again for two-and-a-half-year-old Mary in 1979. In 1980, Jonathan died from causes undetermined at only three months of age. At this point, the rumor was that one or both of the parents, Mary Beth or Joseph, were cursed, if not magically, then genetically. Asked why she continued to bring children into the world given the tragic track record, Mary Beth said, that's what women are supposed to do. Then, a hitch. The couple were in the process of adopting three-year-old Michael when Mary Beth ran him into her pediatrician's office in 1981, wrapped in a blanket. She said she couldn't wake him and didn't know what had happened. The doctor, upon examining him, declared him, too, dead on arrival. But Michael was not Mary Beth and Joseph's blood, so if there were some sort of congenital defect in the family line, Michael could not have been party to it. Even with this neon warning sign in view, it still took until 1985 and the death of three-month-old Tammy Lynn, who Mother Mary Beth said stopped breathing on her changing table on the night of December 20th. The attending physicians at St. Clair's Hospital wrote up the death as a SIDS case, but also reported it to New York State Police, who launched an investigation. Two months later, on February 4th, 1986, Mary Beth confessed to smothering Tammy Lynn with a pillow. She was taken into custody by state police, where she confessed to the murder of Timothy and Nathan. I smothered them with a pillow, she explained, because I'm not a good mother. She denied contributing to the deaths of the other children, but as a curious aside, admitted that she was in the process of slowly poisoning her husband. She was convicted on one count of second-degree murder in July of 1987. The jury found her guilty of depraved indifference to human life in the case of Tammy Lynn, 
but acquitted her of killing the infant deliberately. She recanted her confession to the murders of Timothy and Nathan, and was never convicted of any other crimes. Over the course of 14 years, Mary Beth took the life of at least one child, and maybe as many as nine. Eight of them were her own flesh and blood, the other an innocent orphan surrendered into her care. She's still in prison today, having been denied release on several occasions for what parole boards have called a sense of remorse that was, quote, superficial at best. In her 2011 hearing, she was asked what went through her mind while her children were dying. She answered, Two things that I wanted in life was to be married to someone who cared for me and to have children, and other than that, I can't give you a reason. She's still married to Joseph today. He comes to visit once a month. Munchausen's by proxy, a disputed psychiatric condition whereby caregivers, usually mothers, are compelled to harm their wards, for attention and sympathy, the theory goes. Could that be it? The obituaries for the two children, which we finally found on microfilm, did nothing to assuage suspicions. The youngers noted simply a long illness, the older a reunion with her sister, whom she outlived by four months. These newspapers also supplied us with further breadcrumbs, the parents' business, a departed grandmother, and the name of a third sister, the youngest. She would be the key, must be the key, to settling the matter. Back to the computer. Google, Facebook, LinkedIn. It took less than ten minutes of internet sleuthing for us to find her, her college, her major, her dorm, her phone number. We were in the grip of the mystery, suffering our own compulsion. Should we call? From the sobriety and maturity of the future, the answer is obvious. But somehow in a scant few hours of fleeting interest, my girlfriend and I had managed to convince ourselves of our own powers of deduction, our own compassion, our own importance. I began to dial and stopped, began again, stopped again, I don't know how many times. Safe to say, we almost certainly would have called had we not stumbled upon a story about her mother. Her mother, their mother, all three sisters, testifying before the Ohio State Legislature as part of an unflagging family effort to legalize, fund, and support stem cell research, explaining the tragedy of a rare genetic condition of which both her and her husband had discovered they were carriers far too late. A rare genetic condition marked by lack of muscle control, abnormal breathing, developmental delays, and seizures. A rare genetic condition noted by facial features, broad foreheads, deep, dark eyes, and arched eyebrows. A rare genetic condition that had plagued and taken two of her three daughters' lives. Over the course of a lazy afternoon, we'd convinced ourselves of so many dark imaginings. We'd dug unbidden into lives, a family, a tragedy. We'd created a vision of a disturbed and infanticidal mother within our minds, where a caring and aggrieved woman who went on even after her loss to fight for the lives of others was the real story. We came this close to assaulting a young woman, a young woman not only bereft of her siblings, but undoubtedly an uneasy survivor with our perverted concerns. Why? The how was obvious, and worth noting. 
that anyone these days could get a wild hair and casually stumble their way deeply and secretly into your life. But what was the driving reason? I had known the feeling before. As a child, convincing myself of ghosts or magic or monsters. It's easy to trick yourself into something, and easier still to not notice the trick. This is the thing that I've come to notice most in researching and writing this show. People get things wrong for so many reasons. Prejudice, ignorance, happenstance, deception, misinformation. But there's one thing that I think predicates almost all mistakes and misapprehensions, and that is an unshakable, foolhardy instinct that is always around to assure you that if you were wrong, you'd know it. Even if we understand on an intellectual level, that there is no inborn distinction between true and false things to your brain, it doesn't matter. On a much deeper level, everyone believes, at least much of the time, that being wrong feels different than being right. And it is that confidence, or a lack of skepticism, at least, that trips us up. We didn't harm anyone that day. It was a largely invisible crime, propagated in an empty cemetery, a thinly populated walk, a quiet library. It was a mistake secret to us. And while I felt guilty, while I felt humbled, what I mostly felt was glad to have someone who would join in adventure and misadventure alike, someone with whom I could be both curious and defeated, someone with whom mistakes were a thing to be shared and cherished. A year later, we were married. This was a different kind of episode, and I hope to have more like it down the line. Because what's the good of examining the mistakes of others if we don't turn that examination inwards? To that end, I've set up a hotline for you to call and leave the stories of your mistakes and misapprehensions. Maybe there's a word you misunderstood way too long. Maybe a person you trusted in spite of everything that should have told you otherwise. Whatever it is, petty or profound, funny, sad, scary, we want to hear it. So go ahead and give us a call. Leave us a message telling us your history of getting things wrong. The number is 708-761-0493. Again, that's 708-761-0493. And astute Chicagoans may notice that that number is not from the city proper. Strangely, there are no Chicago numbers left in our VoIP service, so we had to go with one from the collar counties. With that, I'm adjusting the tag for today's show. From Palos Park, home of... Uh... (laughs) Well, a home of a couple thousand people, at least. This has been The Constant.